What a great story to look at this morning about what God was doing in the early church. And uh, Lord willing, we'll find great relevance uh, for us as well. As we begin, uh, I was thinking of this, these verses from the Psalms this morning. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. So I invite you to turn in your Bibles this morning to Acts 15. If you're not already there, I hope you are, as you were following along as Nat was reading. We're going to be actually spending time with verses 1 to 35 today. Those last verses that Matt read we'll talk about next week from 36 to the end. Uh, But today, I'd like to, as we get started, I'd like to ask you a question. How many of you have ever experienced family conflict. (laughs) All right, I see two hands going up. I see people putting their feet in the air. So it seems to be quite a thing. All right. So how many of you who have experienced that conflict experienced it coming from outside the family? There were pressures in the family. It stirred up difficulties and it was coming from outside. So there are a few there. And how many of you have experienced that conflict from within the family itself. So even more, okay. Take a moment and think about it. What is the most difficult type? Conflict from outside the family or conflict that arises from within the family? Well, if you're like me, the hardest conflict to deal with is that that comes from within. When conflict comes from without, that can actually be a very unifying kind of thing to the family because the family is being attacked from without. But when there's conflict within the family, that can be very divisive and disunifying. And that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. In Acts 14, we saw that there was much conflict coming to the church from outside. In fact, up to this time in the book of Acts, we have seen that the opposition to the gospel and the opposition to the followers of Jesus Christ have been from the outside. We saw it, there was opposition from the Jewish leaders early on in Acts 4 and 5. And even in Acts 8, Paul himself, the one who's now a preacher of the gospel, was seeking to destroy the church. We saw opposition from Gentiles who did not believe in Jesus. We saw that from uh, Acts 13 and 14 that we looked at last week. And also from the civil authorities, from the governing authorities, For example, in Acts 12, Herod the king took James and had him executed and imprisoned Peter. And then again in Acts 13 and 14, we even saw that the governing authorities were starting to oppose the church. But now in Acts 15, we see conflict arising from within the church itself. But remember, as we said last week, God is building his church in spite of all opposition whether that opposition is from outside or from within. This conflict is not a threat to God. He continues to build his church, which we will see today. So if you look back in Acts 14, verses 27 and 28, when they had arrived, that is when Paul and Barnabas arrived back to Antioch after their journey, They gathered the church together and declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles, and they remained no little time with the disciples. We get this picture of the church in Antioch celebrating the work that God had done 
in them sending out Paul and Barnabas and using Paul and Barnabas to open this door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remain together no little time, learning and growing together in the gospel, celebrating what God was doing. And perhaps they didn't see the dark cloud that was starting to form on the horizon. But in chapter 15, verses 1 to 5, we see a problem develop within this church. And the first word, you look at the first word of that chapter is, is what? But. But. Things were going well, but. Luke starts off by saying, Some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers. Coming from Judea, Judea was the epicenter of the gospel. This is where it all started. The Holy Spirit came upon the followers of Jesus in Jerusalem. The gospel started from Jerusalem and through Judea. I think the significance here of Luke saying that these men came from Judea is that they obviously must know what they're talking about because they're coming from the the place where this all started. But their basic teaching to this Gentile church, and remember this world at this time is separated into the Jews and Gentiles. There are those who are descended from Abraham through Isaac and Jacob who are called the Jews. They have the Old Testament law, what we know as the Old Testament. They have the law of Moses. They have the relationship with God. They're called out as God's special people. And then there's everybody else, which are the Gentiles. And so these men, these Jewish men, come from Judea to tell these Gentile believers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Their basic teaching to these Gentile believers was that two things were necessary to be saved. Two things were necessary to be rightly related to God. One was belief in Jesus as Savior. You had to believe in Jesus as Savior. And Gentile believers must be circumcised according to the law of Moses. That is the Old Testament law. Now, they didn't have an Old Testament. They had the Bible. They had the scriptures. It's only today, now that the New Testament has been written, that we refer to them as New Testament and Old Testament. But circumcision was the physical sign that had been established by God in the scriptures to identify a person as belonging to the people of God. Circumcision was the physical sign that separated a person as belonging to the people of God. It separated the Jews from everyone else, from the Gentiles. So these men come down and say, you Gentile believers need to be circumcised according to the custom of Moses, as well as believing in Jesus. Otherwise, you cannot be saved. And the narrative here tells us that Paul and Barnabas had extensive debate with them about this issue. And eventually, as it was not being resolved, the church sent Paul and Barnabas and some others down to Jerusalem to discuss the question with the apostles and the elders there. And when they arrive in Jerusalem in verse 4, it says they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But notice in verse 5, as they are sharing the work that has been going on among the Gentiles, there were some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees who rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. Notice who it is who's saying this. These are believers. These are believers. These are members of the family. 
These are members of the church, believers who belong to the party of the Pharisees. They had been Pharisees like Paul had been. They had been ones that had been steeped in the traditions and teachings of the law. And they said it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. This conflict that arises within the church represents the struggle of the new church to work out the implications of the gospel and the changes that it brought in relating to God. This was doctrinal immaturity. They had never faced this question before. They didn't know how to answer it. And it was leading to false teaching, as we will see. But before we pass on from these Pharisees, let's not dismiss their concern as having no basis. It's easy to see where their concern came from. The Jewish people, especially the Pharisees, were deeply entrenched in the necessity to fully obey the law of God. It was disobedience to the law of God that led to many problems, including the devastating defeat by the Babylonians in 586 B.C., and the following 70 years of captivity in Babylon. During that time, the temple had been destroyed. Jerusalem had been torn down. The Jewish kings were deposed, all because of their failure to keep the law of Moses. And now, even though they were back living in their own land and the temple had been rebuilt, they were living with the, the hated Roman occupation. They had no king or kingdom of their own, and they had never fully recovered from the previous captivity that had resulted from their disobedience to God's law. They were not going to let that happen again. They were committed to the keeping of God's law. This was a huge theological and cultural shift. God was telling them something totally different from what they had believed and lived for centuries. And as we will see, this was going to take a lot of hard work by the church to bridge this huge theological and cultural divide. There were two related things here that, were, that made this discussion important. The first thing that made this discussion important was the question is, what is required to say that a person is saved? What is required to say that a person is saved? That is, to be called a child of God to be called part of the people of God. And we see that in verse 1 as we looked at. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. The second question is, what is the proper role of the Jewish scriptures, again, the Old Testament to us, for the new believers? What is the proper role of the Jewish scriptures to the new believers? And we see that in verse 5. It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. Well, verse 6 tells us that the apostles and the elders gathered together to discuss this matter in what has been called the Jerusalem Council. The Jerusalem Council. The church gathers together. You have representatives of the Jewish church in Jerusalem. You have representatives from the Gentile church in Antioch meeting together to hash out the difficulties of this. And verse 7 says, there was much debate much debate. It must have been quite a lively church meeting, if you can imagine. People gathered together discussing these things. We must order them to be circumcised and to follow the law of Moses. No, we are not supposed to do that, and they're back and forth. And as they go through these discussions, 
we see that there are two witnesses that are considered. Two witnesses that are considered, and we see that in verses 6 to 18. The first witness is we see in verse 7. Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. Peter gives a three-verse summary of the events that, are re- that were recorded in Acts 10 and 11 that we studied before when God sent him to the Gentile centurion Cornelius. Peter says God allowed these Gentiles to hear the gospel and believe in Jesus. And he says... He gave them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And Peter then says he also cleansed their hearts by faith just like he did for us. And then verse 10, he basically says, We Jews were never able to find favor with God by our obedience to the law. Why are you now requiring these Gentiles to do something we were never able to? to do. And then he gives what I think is the key statement in this entire passage in verse 11. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. We believe that we will be saved by the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. Notice what happens when Peter is done. All the assembly fell silent. Again, what does that tell us? There was not silence before this. You know, we had read between the lines and see, as I said, this must have been a pretty vigorous discussion going on, a pretty lively debate. But when Peter was done, the whole assembly fell silent. Paul and Barnabas get an opportunity to share their experiences and what God did with them among the Gentiles. So the first witness is Peter. And his experience, it's the witness of experience. And here is the first of two main take-home lessons for us today. The first of two main take-home lessons for us. And it's the core issue of this discussion. And here it is. Salvation is by grace through faith in Jesus plus nothing. Salvation, that is the forgiveness of sins, finding acceptance with God, being restored to relationship with God, being placed into the family of God, the people of God, is by grace through faith in Jesus plus nothing. This addresses the question that we asked before. What is required to say that a person is saved? The gospel is not believe in Jesus and obey the Ten Commandments. Believe in Jesus and stop drinking. Believe in Jesus and start going to church and reading the Bible. Believe in Jesus and stop being immoral. Believe in Jesus and be a good person. The heart of the gospel is that God still requires full obedience to the law. God still requires full obedience to the law, but we are not able to do so. So Jesus, in his life, fulfilled the requirement of the law for us. Also, Jesus took on himself the required penalty for our failure to keep the requirements of the law 
by his death on the cross on our behalf. Our standing before God is not by any works we do, but by the work that Jesus Christ has already done on our behalf. This is grace. There is nothing more we can do to make God accept us more. There is nothing more we can do to make God accept us more. We are saved by grace through faith in Jesus plus nothing. If you are a believer who has the tendencies of a Pharisee, like me, I call myself a recovering Pharisee, it's very easy to want to apply rules and regulations to our life with Christ. But we need to remember this truth for ourselves and for those we share the gospel with. There are no requirements to become a Christian outside believe in Jesus. There's no other requirement other than believe in Jesus. No obedience to the Ten Commandments. No obedience to any other aspects of the Old Testament law. No obedience to to any other rules or regulations. And notice what also Peter says. We will be saved just as they will. We will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. What is he saying? He's saying that we Jews are now united by the grace of Christ with these Gentile believers. There are not to be Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians, Jewish church and a Gentile church. There are Christians. There is the Christian church. And Paul later expands this understanding as you read through his letters that come later. He expands this to include all that divides us. Jew, Gentile, of course, but also socioeconomic status, demographics, gender, race, nationality. We see this particularly in Galatians and Ephesians and Colossians, but we see it, I think, throughout his writings. It's not that these distinctions no longer exist. Yes, there are still Jews and there are still Gentiles. It is that the distinctions are not to be a source of division. The distinctions are not to be a source of division. And whatever distinctions there are among us that we use to divide us in Christ are no longer to divide us. All have full and equal standing before God because of Jesus Christ. We are united by grace. And you look around at the world. (laughs) What the world needs now is love, sweet love. I mean, and it's been going on for how many years? The world has long been looking for peace and unity, and rightly so, rightly so, but they look in the wrong places. It is only the gospel of Jesus Christ that can bring the peace and unity that we long for. So the first witness was the witness of experience. Peter shares his experience of how God led him to the Gentiles. The second witness we see in verses 13 to 18 is the witness of Scripture. The witness of Scripture. It says here that in verse 13, after they finished speaking, James replied. James, one of the the apostles, speaks up. And he turns to the Scripture to see what the Bible says about this issue. He refers to Amos 9 Amos 9, verses 11 and 12. It's a fascinating passage to use here. If you look at verse 16, 
the first thing that Amos says is, after this, I will return. I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins. I will restore it. This is God's promise to the nation of Israel who was in captivity, who was in bondage, recognizing that the tent of David has fallen, the the kingship that had been promised to David. God had promised that David would have someone on the throne of God, on the throne of David forever and ever, and that throne was gone. The tent of David has been fallen. It was in ruins, and God promises that the tent of David will one day be restored, and that the ruins would be rebuilt. That is where the Jews were living at this time. Remember the words in Acts 1-6 as Jesus was getting ready to ascend, what the disciples asked him, Lord, is it at this time you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Is it at this time you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? They were longing for this kingdom to come. They were longing for David's tent to be rebuilt and the ruins to be rebuilt. They were longing for that for centuries And here Amos expresses that that God is promising to do that. But then James goes on to report, to record, or to relate what Amos' next words are in verse 17, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Wow. What God says is, I am going to come and rebuild the tent of David, and as doing so, I'm going to bring the Gentiles into that kingdom in an equal footing. The rebuilding of this kingdom is going to include the Gentiles. It's going to include all nations. And who is the one who's rebuilt the tent of David? Jesus is the son of David, who's now sitting on David's throne, who is rebuilding the kingdom. And part of that rebuilding of the kingdom is bringing the Gentiles into that kingdom together. What James is saying here is that bringing the Gentiles in is included in God's fulfillment of his promise to us as Jews. James is saying that including the Gentiles in this kingdom is really nothing new. We just didn't see it until now. It's nothing new. God had promised this from the very beginning, and we did not see it. And so the Holy Spirit prompts James to read this Old Testament prophecy that describes God's plan to build his people with Jew and Gentile on equal footing. So we have these two witnesses, the witness of experience and the witness of the truth of Scripture. But here's an important principle, and I'm going to spend a couple minutes on this because I think it's important. The truth of Scripture settles the discussion as it confirms the experiences that the apostles had had. The truth of Scripture settles the discussion as it confirms the experiences the apostles had had. This is a principle that actually causes great concern to me and to the elders and perhaps some of you as well. And that is the relationship between experience and the truth of Scripture. I learned years ago in in a church that I grew up in, I grew up in spiritually as a young man, experience does not constitute a doctrine. Experience does not constitute a doctrine. What that means is that you don't derive truth for your life from your experiences. 
The final arbiter of this discussion was not Peter's experience, but the truth of the scripture. It was the standard by which all experience should be measured. And if there's disagreement between the experience and the scripture, the scripture must prevail. In this case, the experience and the scripture agreed. John Stott in his commentary said it this way, there was correspondence between experience and scripture. There was correspondence between experience and scripture. Peter's experience with the Gentiles, Cornelius and his family corresponded to what the scriptures taught. I have heard too many times over many years, I have prayed about this and this is what I should do. I have heard so many times over the years, God told me it's okay to do this. I have heard so many times over the years, I have a peace about it. Sadly, however, many of the things that there was peace about were clearly contradictory to the scripture. Having a peace about it, or I prayed about it and God told me, does not allow us to ignore the revealed truth of scripture. Having a peace about it, or I prayed about it and God told me, does not allow us to ignore the revealed truth of scripture. Our experiences can challenge our beliefs, our experiences can confirm our beliefs, but experience should never be the ultimate standard. Only a proper understanding of scripture should be our ultimate standard. And I believe this is illustrated in this message or this story as Luke relates it, that Peter's experience was confirmed by the truth of the scripture. Well, they reach a judgment based on this discussion, and we see that in verses 19 and 21. They reach a conclusion that has two elements, one that is fairly straightforward and one that is a bit confusing at first look. The first conclusion, James says, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. We should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. What he's saying is that salvation is truly by grace through faith in Jesus alone plus nothing. We do not need to trouble them with anything else. There is nothing to be added. Salvation is by grace through faith in Jesus alone plus nothing. There is no obedience to be added to secure God's favor. Not circumcision, not the Ten Commandments, not any other part of the law, not any other rules. And this establishes the unity of the church by bringing people of diverse backgrounds into one body under the lordship of Jesus Christ rather than fragmenting into different factions. Well, I believe in Jesus and I do this and I believe in Jesus and I do this. No, we're all brought together into one. The second element here, and this is where it gets a little confusing, I think. He says, we ask you to abstain from four things. We should write to them to abstain from these four things. And these four things are things polluted by idols, that is food that has been sacrificed to idols, sexual immorality, what has been strangled, and from blood. And in verse 28, these things are called requirements. He says, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements. All right, what's going on here? First they say there are no added requirements, and now saying we're going to add these four requirements to you. We need to understand the order in which these are coming and their purpose. Both idolatry and immorality were commonly practiced in, in these Gentile cultures. There were animals sacrificed to their idols and the meat sold in the marketplaces. 
Idolatry and immorality were commonly practiced. Thus, these new Gentiles believer, these new Gentile believers would be desensitized, desensitized to the things in the culture and not careful in their practices, being unaware of God's standards for living. For example, they would be willing to eat meat sacrificed to idols, some of which would not have had the blood drained out. They would be tempted to be morally careless because of the culture they grew up in. At least we're doing better than the culture, but still be morally careless, accepting things that they should not. And whether it is meat sacrificed to idols or whether it's being morally careless, both of these would be deeply offensive to the Jews living around them. This would be deeply offensive to the Jews living around them. And James gives the clarifying reason in verse 21 why this is so. He says, For from ancient generations Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. What he's saying is there are Jews in every city who are steeped in the law of God. They know the teaching against idolatry. They know the teaching against immorality. They know these things. And if they see the Gentiles practicing these things, it becomes an offense to them. Thus, these requirements that James and the elders and the apostles placed on the Gentile churches are not requirements for salvation. They're not requirements for salvation. They are expressions of love after being saved. They are expressions of love to not cause unnecessary offense to the Jews around them. An unbelieving Jew may be caused to reject the gospel, not because they rejected Jesus, but because they are offended by what they see as idolatrous and immoral practices. A Jewish person who's a new Christian convert may be caused to stumble by seeing Christians of a Gentile background seemingly accepting idolatry. And so here is the second main lesson. Love is willing to concede non-essential things in the name of preserving unity and not causing unnecessary offense. Love is willing to concede non-essential things in the name of preserving unity and not causing unnecessary offense. Paul repeats this truth often in his later letters, a clear place that he does so in Romans 14, 20, and 21. He says, Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. So they agree on this, and then they deliver the message. They, de they decide to write a letter, and Luke thought it was important enough. You can read it on your own later. He records the content of that letter for us. So the letter is sent to this mostly Gentile church in Antioch. And in this letter, as you read it, there's a statement of equal brotherhood. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles. They're making a statement, a conciliatory statement, a statement of equal brotherhood. They clarify that the men who had come from them had not been sent by them. Yes, they came from Judea, they came from among us, but we didn't send them, we didn't authorize them. They did not come with the teaching that was coming from us. And these things that we're telling you, we have unanimously agreed on them. We have come to one accord on these things. 
And the letter answers the two questions that we posed earlier. What is required to say that a person is saved? And what is the proper role of the Jewish scripture to the new believers? They sent two men, Judas and Silas, who would give verbal affirmation of the letter's contents. I find this fascinating as well as you look at this story. Judas and Silas made the 300-mile trip to be able to be personally present with the letter when it was read. They wanted to send more than just the letter. Personal contact was important enough to send Judas and Silas along with Paul and Barnabas. Paul and Barnabas could have taken the letter. They could have gone to Antioch, read the letter, and everything would have been fine. But the church said, no, we want Judas and Silas to be personally present as our representatives to talk to you and to present these things to you. I see relevance here for us in our digital age. Email, text, social media, they're great ways to communicate, aren't they? But they are not substitutes for personal face-to-face meetings any more than the letter was. Their technology was the written letter carried by hand 300 miles. We have technologies as well that can become just as impersonal And I believe this is a statement for us to to realize that personal face-to-face meetings say far more than email, text, and social media can ever say. The church received the letter and received it with great joy and encouragement because of what it said. So what is the conclusion to all this? Well, we started this message about family conflict. And I believe it's relevant as we have conflict within the church. This is the family of God, and it often happens. And as hard as this is to say, conflict is not necessarily bad news. It's hard news, it's difficult, but it's not necessarily bad. Because it's through this conflict that God hashed out some details of some very important issues that the church needed to understand. I have seen people, myself included, unfortunately, Avoid conflict because of its discomfort rather than doing the hard work to resolve it. This was hard work. There was much debate. There was not silence in the assembly as they worked through these difficult things. But they did the hard work to resolve this. I recently reached out to a person who was having some trouble in our church with some of the difficulties and challenges we had. And the person didn't want to talk about it because they just didn't even want to think about the conflict. They, just wanted, they were even thinking about going somewhere else because they, didn't, they just couldn't take the, the challenges. Uh, let's not be like that. Let's face it and let's pursue the truth together. The proper way to address conflict in the church is God's people and community using God's word at the direction of God's spirit to wrestle through the issues, to resolve them with truth and love. And sadly, conflict, whether in the family or in the church, may not always be resolved. But I'd like you to look at verse 33. After they spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. This chapter started with conflict, proceeded with much debate, and ended with peace. That is the goal that God would have for all of us. John Stott said this of the Jerusalem Council. He said, the Jerusalem Council can be said to have secured a double victory. There was a victory of truth in confirming the gospel of grace. And there was a victory of love in preserving the fellowship by sensitive concessions to conscientious Jewish scruples. 
It's a victory of truth in stating that salvation is by grace through faith in Jesus alone plus nothing. It's the gospel that brings us together in unity. It's also a victory of love because genuine fellowship is rooted in the love of God that we ourselves have received from God that we then extend to others. If we're not able to extend to others, Jesus says, that means we have not fully understand the love that we have been given. Love is willing to concede non-essential things in the name of preserving unity and not causing unnecessary offense. May God help us as Grace Chapel to live in the light of these two victories, the victory of truth and the victory of love, especially when conflicts come. Amen. Let's close this time in prayer. God, may you help us to live as these brothers and sisters did, being willing to do the hard work to pursue truth and love. And like them, may you lead us as Grace Chapel in the victory of truth, where the truth of Scripture is our ultimate standard, starting with the truth that salvation is by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus plus nothing. And may you lead us into the victory of love where we are willing to concede non-essential things in the name of preserving the unity you have given us and in the name of not causing unnecessary offense. We need you, Lord, to work these out for us as you did for our brothers and sisters so many years ago, to work these out for us, in us, and through us. And may you be pleased to do so by the power of your spirit, the truth of your word, and the gospel of our Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.